the Behind the Seams podcast. I'm your host, Nunzio Signore, looking to bring you great dialogue with some of the best in the world of player development. The world of training baseball players has changed dramatically during the past few years, and I'm looking forward to shedding some light here on what's the latest, what's the best, and what's really happening in the world of player development. Thanks for joining me for the ride. Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Before we begin, I want to tell you about our new remote training programs here at RPP. We've been offering remote training for quite some time, but we always required athletes to come in-house for assessments. Now, we can do the whole assessment online, and we're really excited about bringing all of our services, pitching, hitting, and strength training, to your doorstep. So if you like what we do and how we do it, check it out on our website at rocklandpeakperformance.com under remote training in the toolbar. Thanks. Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of Behind the Seams Podcast. I'm Nunzio Signori, and today I thought it would be great to recap my experience down at speaking at the Bridge Seminar at Wake Forest this weekend. I did this when I spoke last year, and the podcast was so well received that I figured it would be a no-brainer to do it again. For those of you not familiar with the Bridge Seminar, it's a great seminar uh, in regards to everything player development, whether it's strength and conditioning, data, physical training, PT, athletic training. And the host, Mike McFerrin, a good friend of mine, was first-class treatment from takeoff to landing for us. Everyone stayed at the same hotel, which I thought was fantastic because what ended up happening is after that seminar every night, everyone would hang back at the hotel. They had a little bar there at the hotel in the lobby, and you would bump into guys that were there to see the seminar, other speakers. We had a social on Friday, which was fantastic. It just was a really, it was a nonstop learning environment for two and a half days. Mike presented with such a wide variety of guests that it spanned the entire gamut of player development and finished off with a tour of the pitching lab, which unfortunately um, I missed. I've been there a few times. It's just something to see, but I thought it was great that he finished off with a tour of the pitching lab. This was my second year presenting, and it was obvious to see the tentacles that this seminar is creating in the field of player development. I'm really sorry that I could not see Robin Lund's presentation on workload management. I got in late on Friday night, and he presented on Friday night, and I somehow seem to miss this guy every time he's there. He's a good friend and a really smart guy. My pitching coaches were there, and I said, write down everything that this guy says because all of it will be usable. But today, I'm going to touch on four or five presentations. I would really love to speak on all of them, but I have to keep the podcast timing down to about 25 to 30 minutes. I like to keep them short. So I'm going to focus on a few old friends and a few new ones for this episode. First up in the lineup is our actual host, Mike McFerrin. His presentation was titled, Creating Winners. Mike started with explaining how he explains what it is that he does. And he explains he's a bit of each, of a pitching coach, a biomechanist, and a strategist, basically wearing a lot of hats. He also talked about one of the key methods for developing teams and getting outs is to zoom in and polish the details. I thought this was an amazing presentation of how Mike took 
an entire span of looking at players and kind of breaking it down to really simply looking at strengths and weaknesses, you know? Zoom out and understand the broader picture, he said, basically how things interact with each other, much like the domino effect. He also talked about the importance about helping the athletes define their identity in order to teach them what they're really good at, as well as helping them better build a career later for themselves by equipping them with the tools for dealing with success later. When you listen to Mike talk, you can tell he is just really passionate about what he does, which probably is why he's really good at what he does. Anybody that I've really ever seen speak is passionate about what they do. They're generally really good at what they do. He also spoke about building an athlete's pitching identity around getting outs. You know, this is obviously what is the most important thing to do. It's the most important thing to do is get outs. This involves making their strategic priority to get those outs by focusing what their, on what their strengths are. The topic of diversity was great as to be designing guys to be different than each other. So it makes adjustments when facing lineups to adjust from arm to arm, kind of changing the environment for these guys. Hitters are used to seeing one guy, but if you have a lot of weapons and a big, a large arsenal and the way you can move and the way you can get outs, it makes it a bit more confusing for a hitter. And they're trying to build upon those strengths and weaknesses in order for them to better get outs. He actually went as far as to say he thought pitching is about the prevention of successful adjustments from opposing hitters. And I thought that was a great way of looking at it. Another one of the aha moments for me was when his comparisons to starters and relievers were compared to being marathoners and relievers being sprinters. But the chessboard comparison was my favorite part of the presentation. Mike said he likes to play chess against his guys to get a bit of insight about who they are strategically as well as their decision-making abilities. He compared starters to queens, versatile with many options, have a lot of movement for attacking, and re relievers were compared to support pieces like the rook, the bishop, or the horse. They have one to two moves that they're really good at, but they still have limitations. But those guys end up usually winning the game most of the time for you. To put it bluntly, Mike said as far as the power of relievers goes, he summed it up by saying, the energy at the end of a ball game is very real. Having these guys come in as like, as he puts it, assassins in the end of the game really is dealing with a higher energy level when guys that have been playing a full game maybe are just not conditioned enough to actually accept that. And finally, when asked how he assesses players on day one, what's the first thing you look for? Mike replied, nothing. I just watch. He said, let the player put all his cards on the table and see what happens. Gather enough information to be able to make educated decisions on what's good and what needs to change with this guy. Looking at things such as how does he get outs? How could he better get outs? Where is he getting beat? Just a real lot of gems here. One other one great was when looking at data, different is the value due to the fact that hitters are not used to it. This, this whole presentation was really developing the element of surprise for a hitter and having so many tools at your disposal that you can pull them out of your hat anytime you want to, forcing the hitter to have to adjust on the fly. Just an overall great and insightful presentation by Mike McFerrin, as I would expect and looking forward to see what he's got planned for next year. Next up was Emily Faree, and um, I heard her presentation last year, and this year was no different. They were both exceptional. 
Emily has a way of talking about technical, anatomical things. She delivers it in a way that can be absorbed by a pitching coach or a strength and conditioning coach. And I try to do the same thing. It's a really, really valuable tool. As much as we know about things, it does us no good when we're trying to teach somebody if we can't explain it in terms that they can explain. And Emily does a really great job at doing that. The focus of her presentation was inputs versus outputs. Basically looking upstream at our inputs instead of trying to look at something at the end of the delivery and trying to fix that. That's an output. And she's saying, we need to go back and we need to go look at what the input was that caused this output. She talked a lot about the importance of the back leg. She talked about how it happens first and slowly. So it's the most obvious input to address first in regard to the domino effect. It has on everything else that happens later. One of the things that she spoke about was keeping that back leg engaged in order to better create torque for longer periods of time while going down the mound. This is something that we see here with a lot of young athletes who do not always have the uh, needed strength to keep that back foot engaged into the ground as they come down prior to rotating. She also talked about shortening up the stride in order to better hold hip-shoulder separation. This is instead of vaulting out into early pelvic rotation or hip rotation, which really only creates early hip-shoulder separation before they really need to unwind with it closer to foot plant. We see this all the time in our mocaps. A lot of actual young guys, they try to create that hip-shoulder separation by spinning their hips early, and all it really does is get them out of their back leg sooner. It creates a vault down the mound. It creates direction force in a more vertical direction than linear. Really, when we look at their mocap in there, they may have great hip shoulder separation, but it's way before foot plant. And then they see, you see how much they unwind by foot plant, where we actually need to take that, that torque that we've created and unwind with it once we begin to decelerate the lower half. Another thing she talked about in regards to the lead leg block, making use of transverse rotational plane, not the sagittal plane. I liken this to they need to continue rotation around front hip when they land. She, she explained, you'll see guys land and kind of like a bicycle hitting the curb, sagittally coming over their leg and pulling their leg back physically to try to post up instead of rotating that hip and letting it happen with the adductor to actually help facilitate extension of the leg. That leg should post up through rotation, not by physically kicking it back. That does nothing for transfer of force from the lower half. And I'm really glad she talked about that because you would not believe how many pitching coaches still tell their guys when they come in here, some of the guys tell them, kick that leg back, kick that leg back. And this is a great explanation of why you don't. Being careful not to intervene based off of torque numbers instead of looking for any existence of pain. And I early on have been a bit guilty of this myself when looking at mocaps and looking at torque and seeing a high amount of torque and thinking that there's something wrong with that. So this was a little bit of an aha moment for me in this presentation. I am guilty of when I see a lot of torque, I begin to worry about injury. And she explained, listen, if they're throwing hard and they're hitting their marks and they don't have pain, I wouldn't worry about torque that much. And this was, this was a big one for me. And finally, she talked about something near and dear to my heart, block training versus variable training. This is a little bit of a shout out for me to Franz Bosch with his DNS training, his dynamic neuromuscular training. Emily talked about the importance of utilizing block training while learning the skill, but performance training is usually found in the variability of training. 
This is much of what we do here at RPP. Randy Sullivan likes to call it chaos training. When you're learning a movement, it's really important to not add the element of surprise. But once we need to make that real time, once we need to make that game-like, game-like is unpredictable. So training needs to be unpredictable. And this is much of what we do here at RPP. And this will be one of the topics we discuss next month with Emily when we get her up here on the podcast. Next up is my buddy, Dr. Freehill, another guy that I spent time with last year at the seminar. Mike is the head of orthopedic surgeon for the Oakland A's and someone who's become a bit of a confidant for me in arm rehab. When I have questions, I pick up the phone and I can call Mike and Mike's very gracious with his knowledge. The focus of his talk this year was slap tears and repair procedures. And he presented some pretty alarming statistics on the increase in slap tears, and not only pro players, but in youth as well. And he touched on some key focal points for both prevention and recovery, which were one was balancing out the strength and stability of the scapula. Many of us know that instability is one of the main causes of labral tears. And I had actually brought up a question to Mike about Bennett's lesions, which is kind of like a little calcification speed bump that forms posteriorly that comes from instability. The body starts to lay down bone. And I've seen guys actually get labral tears from Bennett's lesions as well. A key point to why stability of the scapula is such a main focal point when we're working in the off season with guys, when we get guys back. So when he gets, when he has a slap tear repair, when he gets guys back into the weight room, Scapular stability should always be year-round, but even more so for these guys, because if not, we're just tr- we're, we're treating the pain site instead of the source. The other thing he talked about a lot was core strength, the ability to keep the core strong so we can stay stable, proximal before we go distal. When talking about the rehab of slap tears, he said that recovery and rest can take anywhere from six weeks to three months, depending on the severity. And there's a 50, this was a huge statistic for me. There's a 50 to 84% return to play in baseball compared to 60 to 90% in all other sports. And this is primarily due to the tear being further down and away from the glenohumeral joint, stemming from the ballistic motion of throwing. He even went as far to say as that he has gymnasts who hang from a bar who have a faster and better return to play percentage than baseball players. The next topic that he talked about was in regards to how too much range of motion can be just as bad as not enough and used the example of anterior laxity in the front of the shoulder stemming from the use of weighted balls with athletes who already present with great external rotation. I myself tell guys, listen, man, you've got a really loose shoulder Putting a weighted ball in your hand right now is only going to make an unstable joint more unstable. Some guys need to get loose. Some guys need to get tight. And a weighted ball is not going to be, is not going to serve well for guys who need to get tight. Kind of the same principle of guys who are, have a lot of laxity and they're really long and loose, but they're not using their glutes and they have tight hamstrings and then they stretch their hamstrings, but they're stretching that hamstring that's already too long. So it's like banging your head against the wall to get rid of a headache. Same principle as using weighted balls that are going to kick you into layback external rotation when you've already got 140 degrees of it. That's just a recipe for disaster. That's going to create anterior humeral glide and it's going to create that anterior laxity that uh, he was talking about. 
On the procedure side, Dr. Freehill talked about seeing many labor procedures being, for lack of a better word, stitched up too tight, and how a loop knot procedure he has found doesn't tie the athlete's mobility down as ballistically post-op when it's time to return the throw. He showed some amazing slides that he took of surgeries that he's actually done himself. These were amazing camera shots and camera angles that better explained what's going on and what he's doing and when something is a tear and when something looks like a tear and it might not be and how immobile a arm can get after surgery if that suture is too tight. Just simply mind-blowing video. And lastly, he talked about what he called an ER sling. This is a sling that he puts guys in post-op, which keeps the arm slightly more into abduction and out to the side in the early stages of healing to help get them overhead more efficiently once it's time to start to get overhead. All in all, this was a really, really informative presentation on a topic that, you know, not a lot of us are very keen on because we're not orthopedic surgeons. And uh, he really presented it in a way that made um, not only it able for me to speak to the parents of my clients when they come in and they're asking me about my opinion of different surgeries and my ability to talk to their doctors. Dr. Frio has gone a long way in educating me over the couple, past couple years in being able to talk that talk to a certain degree with other orthopedic surgeons. And this goes a long way in their trust in having them let me do the rehab. Jimmy Boofy. What can I say about Jimmy Boofy? CEO of Reboot Motion and a really, really smart guy, and just a really nice guy and a great guy to hang out with. He became a new friend last year, and I've spoken to him on the phone. We touched base before we came down. We hung out a little bit at the gym on Sunday morning. This guy's a plethora of knowledge when it comes to biomechanics and physics. His talk was on biomechanics and its relation to injury risk. He talked about creating a blueprint for predicting safe velocity. I thought it was cool of all the things he could talk about. He talked about safe velocity, and um, that's something that we don't talk about enough. But there were a few aha moments in this one, and this is one that I had actually called him about about three, four months ago. He talked about the importance of understanding the variations in calculating foot plant and ball release. And I had called Jimmy maybe three months ago, and I said, dude, where are you marking weight-bearing foot plant? And he said, everybody marks it differently. What the main important goal is, is that wherever you mark it, Make sure you mark it the same way. I remember Glenn Fleisick had told me when the ankle starts to actively decelerate. So that's where I use it. Uh, and Jimmy said, that's great. But if that's where you use it, use it there all the time. And that's even more important than about where you put it. But in a movement as fast as pitching, Jimmy was, was explaining that making sure that your mark for foot plant and ball release is the same for every guy is more important than actually where you put it. He talked about the importance of selecting appropriate models. He used the term decision trees versus random forest models. That was a bit over my head, but he also displayed a high-low model in which red warning flags go up in either case of either high signified in red or low signified in blue. So for example, if something is marked as a high risk, it could either be red, the, if the data number is high, or it's blue. Either way, it's on the high risk side. So for example, high pitching velo would be a red flag 
for injury, while say low torso vertical alignment would be on the red flag side, even though it would be marked blue because the vertical alignment is low. It was just a real easy way to look at something immediately and get a gist of what's going on with the athlete. And lastly, he talked about the importance of analyzing biomechanical data with clean injury data to be, to be able to see what may have changed. We talk about this a lot at RPP on the importance of getting guys at the end of the year, getting guys to mocap so we can get a visual picture of what it looks like when everything is going right. So when something does go wrong, we can take another mocap and we can see what has changed. It's really important that you don't always just take mocap and collect data when to see what's wrong. Sometimes you take it to document what's right so you can see what's wrong in case something goes down left field later. And lastly was yours truly talking about profiling pitchers and creating a common language within the organization. I explained a bit at first about consulting with Major League Baseball teams. And the one thing that I see is how these guys have exceptional divisions as far as PT, athletic training, strength, pitching, hitting. But the common language between all of the divisions is lacking. And I felt like um, there needs to be an assessment of the way we profile athletes that is a lot easier to stare at and understand from a lowest hanging fruit perspective that all aspects of the organization can understand, including the front office. I first got this idea from Graham Lehman, who's a super smart guy and just somebody that you should always go and check out. He's a groundbreaking guy. And about seven years ago, I met him and he talked about this small on-field assessment that he was doing. And I thought it was such a great idea. I said, Graham, you know what? I'm going to try and do this in my facility covering a lot more bases. And uh, he was doing this way before me. So uh, I cannot take credit for it. I just have expanded upon it. This was the design of my presentation, taking guys through it, why it's important, the assessment itself. I talked about how you have mobile guys, you have guys with long lever arms, you have strong guys, and you have guys that have it all. And these guys all throw hard. They just go about it in different ways. I presented my assessment that you can physically see at a glance to understand all the various physical factors and the quantity needed of each to produce an elite athlete. I think it builds autonomy. The profile, the 10 bar graph is easy to see with athletes. It helps create a common language between the coach and the player. And it creates that common language I was talking about between great pitching coaches, strength coaches, ATs, PTs. They should all understand these universal principles for better communication within the organization. I then proceeded to go through the assessment categories. Number one, architecture and anthropometrics, mobility, strength, power, elasticity, deceleration and plyometric ability, and body composition. We talked first a bit about the infrasternal angle, wides and narrows, how we change the way guys rotate, what we give them in the weight room, what we give them for breathing drills, and how we expect to see the back leg when they load. I then went on to talk about lever arms, measuring anthropometrics, and how it's like looking at the frame of a car, not the engine or the drivability or the flexibility of the car, and it's something that we can't really change, so it becomes the most important metric to base everything else around. On the mobility front, 
We talked about, you know, it's how, how it's impossible to be a great pitcher without great mobility, but how amount, the amount that you need to generate power is different from guy to guy. And this will depend on the type of mover you are. And I showed an example of a bite and score that we use. Some of the things we test like shoulder ER and IR, hip rotation, external rotation, internal rotation, T-spine rotation, extension, Thomas test. I went through a bunch of different uh, tests that we take and some mechanical uh, considerations that we would use as far as hip body goes before moving on to strength. When we talked about max strength, I talked about it as this is the glass of max strength, allows you a bigger glass to put all other types of strength in, that being accelerative strength, strength speed, speed strength, and speed. So it helps us avoid injury by being able to disperse high amounts of stress. This type of strength is the foundation that all the other types of strength are built upon and um, how you know our long and tall guys, we approach strength a little differently. We don't expect them to put the kind of numbers up that we we would expect to see with shorter guys, and um, that's okay. They rely more on elasticity. I then went into power, how we look at lower body power with a CMJ and a squat jump, telling the difference of what needs to be done and how we can reassess it later. We looked at upper body power and assessing that with Proteus Motion, and we looked at the Proteus Motion and how we use it to calculate power and elasticity. Next up was upper half elasticity, talking about the core and its dual role as a force producer and a force transmitter. Force producer, when it's being stretched in the early cocking phase, start to create hip shoulder separation, and then a force transmitter in the acceleration phase when the muscles contract to close the gap. And some guys do this better than others, and that is due to how well they can use that fascial sling. The last two things I touched on were deceleration plyometric ability and body composition, as far as deceleration, eccentric strength, the ability of the athlete to hit the brakes, this is how we judge how a guy moves, whether he moves better to his left or to his right, and for a pitcher, how well he can decelerate that front leg, and some decisions we can make on the mound that would look into that might help him produce more force by maybe landing heel first or flat, depending upon how well he can accept that force. And lastly was body composition, and I explained that athletes that have high levels of this lean body mass generally have more potential to transfer high amounts of momentum to throw gas. That, that's, that means they have the potential to do that. It means doesn't mean they will. But the major league baseball pitcher on average are between 2.7 to 3.0 times their height in inches with about 12 to 15% body fat. This was a study done by Graham Lehman over the course of, I believe it was like 10 years. Uh, there are, however, outliers who can get by with either lower or excessive body weight. This, however, is not the norm. And generally, we can see uh, these athletes come apart a little bit later on in their career. Well, that was it for a couple of the uh, presentations that I really enjoyed. Once again, I just can't thank Mike McFerrin and Wake Forest enough for holding such a great event. I look forward to seeing it again next year, hopefully speaking at it. It was just, it's just great to see these guys. We don't get to see each other enough. We're in all different parts of the country, and it's just really great when we can all get together, have a couple beers, and um, sit around and shoot the shit, basically. Just have a lot of fun, and making those new friends is priceless. So till next time, you can reach me at, at Nunzio Signore on Twitter. You can reach my facility on Twitter and Instagram at RPP underscore baseball. I have a book out 
called Velocity-Based Training, How to Apply Science, Technology, and Data to Maximize Performance. That You can get that on Amazon. It's released by Human Kinetics, and uh, the facility is rocklandpeakperformance.com. Until then, stay tuned for the next episode of Behind the Seams Podcast, and uh, have a great day.